I think I think in in that light, I think you really get to feel whether this is what you want to do. And um, you know, I really believe that you know, coaching is something that's in your blood. That you don't look at it as as tedious work. You look at it as a learning experience. And once you decide this is what you want to do in your life, you're willing to do whatever you have to do in order to to get a break. And and the breaks are hard to come, even though you go through being a GA. It doesn't really guarantee anything. This is how we do Welcome to episode 14 of the Sideline Hustle podcast. This is your host, Drew Lieberman. We continue with part two of our coaching carousel series. In this episode, we talk about the process of finding jobs at all levels in the coaching world. We share stories about climbing the ladder as young coaches and lay out the requirements for someone looking to break into the profession or advance down the road. There's that and plenty more that we get into, but but I'll let you guys hear it from us yourself. Ralph Friedgen, former head coach at Maryland, and Mike Teal, the current head football coach at Don Bosco Prep, are both on the show today. Uh, before we get started, I just want to shout out to all of you guys, the listeners. Earlier today, the Sideline Hustle podcast was as high as number seven on the iTunes Top 200 list of all sports podcasts in, in the country. It's pretty incredible considering, you know, we're really still just getting started, but that's credit to everyone listening and everyone who supports us, so thank you guys so much. All right, here's a here's a throwback to a relevant soundbite from the first ever recorded sit-down for the podcast with my business partner, Adam Purdy, that I thought was pretty cool considering I'm still producing episodes from my backpack and a laptop. Top, and we've been able to come this far. This is authentic, is what it really is. It is. Even the way we've come up in the world, think about it. Yeah. We've created the website ourselves, we've made this podcast ourselves. Like everything's been done just by us hustling and, and I doing mean, we're it. We're literally recording a podcast on a couch I bought from Bob's. <laughs> Literally in with, your living room with a mic, with a microphone connected to a MacBook Pro <laughs> that has like sixty four percent battery right now. Right. Like, but we're hustling. We're hustling. We're just trying to tell a story, and we're telling stories that people have never heard before. I got into being a GA because the coach asked me to volunteer coach the freshman team. At that time, there was a freshman team. So, you know, once I started doing that, I knew what I wanted to do. I was fortunate to get my uh, master's degree, but uh, the year after I got my master's degree, I had been a GA voluntarily for three years, and um, they talked me into being a graduate assistant for the fourth year with Coach Claiborne, and that's when he paid me 150 a month and uh, no room or board. <laughs> and Frank Beamer was a GA with me, so we both were getting the same thing. Now, he had a wife, and she was working in the athletic department, so she was making a salary, but... I had a girlfriend that was supporting me, so <laughs> it's a little bit different. But I'm glad you realize that. <laughs> yeah, so once you know what you want to do, then, you know, it's like any other job. If you enjoy what you're doing, it's really not work. The amount of hours you put in is really irrelevant. You know, it's, it's not like you're working. I, you know, I keep telling all the players that played for me and even my son-in-law that it's more important you enjoy what you're doing than, you know, doing something just to make money because you can be miserable just doing that. And my thought there is if you like what you're doing, you'll do it well enough to make a good living and, and be very happy with what you're doing. So I think that's why Coach Claiborne always wanted to see, you know, Tommy Groom, who was the running back coach for Coach Claiborne, he told me, that Coach Claiborne loves to see guys suffer 
he says it, it weeds out the guys that don't want to coach. And uh, if you can, if you can do something other than coaching, then you're probably not meant to be a coach. That's what I, I remember. I heard uh, David Cutcliffe speak at the convention a couple years ago, and he said exactly that. He was like, "If you if you can live without coaching, coaching's probably not for you." Yeah, yeah. And David and I are very good friends. And, you know, we're probably very similar in a lot of our thoughts, so, and that's kind of how it is. everybody this is your host drew lieberman what up this is gary nova your everyday quarterback and you are now listening to the sideline hustle podcast here's two guys one guy who coached in the big ten and one guy who played in the big ten talking about their experiences and i'm like you did do a good job of getting rid of the football i mean yeah sometimes i got rid of it to other teams right 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 from the sidelines, we gotta hustle cause we gotta eat. From the sidelines, we got some goals that we still gotta reach. How do coaches get hired? You know, I think if you aspire to be a college coach, then the first thing you're gonna have to do is, you know, pay your dues and, and try to be a graduate assistant. I think that's the one way to go. This is Ralph Friedgen, former head coach at the University of Maryland or, or uh, go coach in high school and hopefully become a, a head coach in high school. I don't see many assistants going the college rope in high school. So to me, if you go that route, you want to be a, a successful high school coach. And I think the best way to develop contacts if you go that route is to have recruitable players where people are going to come in and, and try not only to recruit you or hire you for your expertise as a coach, but also because you obviously did a good job of developing players or attracting players and use that influence and that you may help be able to recruit more players. But, you know, the, probably the standard way and most uh, accessible way is becoming a graduate assistant. The number one thing is your network. You know, how broad is your network? Who do you know? Who have you worked for? Who have you worked for that knows someone that knows someone? What's up, guys? This is Mike Teal, head football coach at Don Bosco Prep High School, former Rutgers and Seattle Seahawks quarterback. It's it's a really small, tight-knit community in a really big field, uh, and you hear it all the time. Head coach gets fired, gets another job somewhere else, and those guys are going with them. Uh, you know, and it's it's kind of crazy because you figure as a young coach, how do you get in there if you're just basically recycling guys from one job to the other? So that's always the challenge for the young guys. But with the guys that are in there, th- those guys have the connections and those guys have the resumes and have worked with other people along the way where they're always able to reach out. And for the most part, if there's a, an opportunity, be able to take advantage of it. And how about if, if you are a young guy that doesn't really have that kind of network? <clears throat> What would be your advice or what's your opinion on how you find a job? It's hard, man. It's hard. I mean, you got to grind. I remember just last podcast, listening to Ralph, he GA'd for four years. Mm-hmm. He, do you want to GA and make, you know, $5,000 a year for four years and live on a couch? Like, there's not a lot of guys that want to do that. They Everyone wants instant gratification. You have a totally different job search process. You end up at Albany, right? Mm-hmm. How, do, how do you end up there? So, Coach Sidlecki, our offensive coordinator at Wesleyan, he used to coach for Bob Ford, who was the head coach at Albany at the time. And Bob Ford... Legend. Bob Ford was a legend. Bob yeah. Ford, at the time he retired, was the winningest active head football coach in all of college football. He started with Al- Albany football 40 years ago as an intramural program, built it up to D3 to D2, D1AA. Now he's in the best conference in all of Division I AA. 
and has built that program from scratch. I worked for him in his last year before he retired. They built a brand new stadium and named it Bob Ford Field. He's one of the most incredible guys like I've ever been around. So Coach Sedlecki connected me with them. They brought me up to interview. $6,000 for the whole year to be the GA and video. 6000 $6, for the whole year. I got My paychecks were $150. You know, he offered me a job as the video coordinator and office of GA. And I actually had just been offered a $30,000 job at Bates the day before. And I turned it down to go to Albany because I wanted to be at the highest level. Where'd you live when you were out there? So the head guy, Bob Ford, knew I didn't have a place to sleep. Knew I couldn't afford rent. He knew what he was paying me. So he looks at me and he goes, I'm going to give you these keys but you can't tell anyone and you can't get caught. And he gave me the keys to the press box, which sat on top of the, the old, the press box of the old stadium sat on top of the athletic facility. And I lived in the press box for nine months. Break this down for me. You had, did you have a bed in, in the yeah, press box? So, like, where did you sleep? Like a big, like kind of- Is it like raised up in the air? Like it, press it's, box? It's, it's literally like one of those mobile houses, like sitting on top of the, of the building. It's like a big trailer with like like three different rooms. Like it's literally like a mobile home sitting on top that of the building insane. with big windows, right? So the first room is pretty big, has a TV, has heat, the big windows. It was like the president's suite, just a big empty room. I put my I put my air mattress in there, all right? And then you walk down in the middle is like where the press would sit. There's a lot of different like cubicles. Didn't really use that for anything. You walk down to the end, there's like a little boardwalk on top of the on top of the building. And you walk down to the end, it was a similar room, but it was a little bit smaller. In that last room, I put cardboard over the windows because right. no one could see that I was in there. So at night, and I made that into a walk-in closet. I had I had a hanging rack, I had my my clothes folded on the floor on this one shelf, and I had a mirror in there, and I would go in there to change before I went out. That was my <laughs> walk-in closet. And because I needed to like change when it was when it was dark outside, I had to board the windows up so the police or no one could see the light coming to know anyone was using. Wow. So I used to go out like if I was talking to a girl and thought like you know she might be interested in. in you know, going home to one of each other's houses, she'd be like, where do you live? And I'd be like, I have an apartment on campus. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you thought that. I'd drive them up to this big athletic facility. We'd have to walk down and I didn't even have a key to the building. There was just one door I knew you could rip open like by force. So she's like looking at this like, where the f are we? This is not an apartment building. And I'm ripping this door open. She's like, what are you breaking in? Like, what is up? The first door you come into is a locker room. So the first so thing you get like the whiff of like yeah, you the get the sweat, whiff of this, the all pads, the sweat, everything. Oh my God. So walking through the locker room, and by then every girl must have thought that I was going to murder them. Like I don't know how, and, and no girl ever turned around somehow. It's a testament to you, I guess. And somehow I had some game, right? Yeah. And so I would bring her up to the fourth floor. We'd go through this little narrow hallway, and I'm not kidding you. She'd be like, when they would get upstairs on the roof, they'd see the stars, and it would be that every time. Like they'd be like, oh. This is actually pretty nice. I mean, that's the thing for the kind of view you had. Yeah. To get that in New York, <laughs> you can't get that. Dude, the in press New York. box in New York would cost you press at least twelve hundred dollars. You have got to grind. You know, there's got to be some luck that comes into it. There's got to be some opportunity that comes into it. You know, being in the right place at the right time. But at the end of the day, you've got to work hard and, and you've got to impress the right people. Well, I think the only way to do that is to have some contacts, somebody that either knows the coach or can recommend you. I think it also helps if you're a good student. I mean, uh, at Maryland, you know, it was hard for us to get graduate assistance unless they had a, a 3.0 or higher GPA to get into graduate school. So that was that was a prerequisite for me. Um, my last couple of years at Maryland, there was a there was an opportunity in the education department where if a kid had coached in an urban environment, they would let him in for for a GPA, you know, under 3.0, and that helped me out quite a bit. But that didn't come for a while, and I don't know if it's even still there. But I think I think in in that light, I think you really get to feel whether this is what you want to do. And uh, you know, I really believe that you know coaching is something that's in your blood that you don't look at it as as 
tedious work. You look at it as a learning experience. And once you decide this is what you want to do in your life, you're willing to do whatever you have to do in order to, to get a break. And, and the breaks are hard to come, even though you go through being a GA. It doesn't really guarantee anything. Uh, so it's a lot about being in the right place at the right time. But I think a lot of it, too, is just is just being around, going to clinics, conventions, different places where guys are speaking. When guys, I mean, coordinators or, or position coaches and you, you keep showing up, you, you're kind of like that annoying, you know, fly that just keeps coming and keeps coming. And I think there's something to be said about that. You keep showing that you want to be there and you keep making an effort to be at the places they're at, whether it's a convention, whether it's the, the, the glade clinics and the Nike clinics, you just keep showing up and eventually, you know, you keep giving the coach your resume, you know, he gets a, a GA job to open up, maybe he takes a look at it. You know, I think the other thing is, if you want to get into college coaching, I think you should go to as many clinics as you possibly can, not only for the knowledge you can gain from clinics, but from the contacts you can make. So you got to build up a network, you got to get a break, you got to get your foot in the door. And the more you're around those people, the more relationships you develop, the better your chances of doing it. This is what you really want to do. Yeah, I would say the same for the, the summer recruiting camps. I knew I wanted to coach when I was about a, a junior in college. I volunteered at like 28 Division One camps one summer. Slept in my car for a month, and I worked from every camp from Boston College down to Tennessee, UConn, East Carolina, Duke. North Carolina, Virginia, Virginia Tech. I worked every D1 camp they had. And in the summers, those camps are usually staggered, the dates, so because they don't want they don't want the camps to interfere with each other. So a lot of those dates are staggered. So I was able to work at almost every school up and down the East Coast for free, showed up, busted my butt, helping quarterbacks, receivers, setting up cone center drills, and followed up every single one of those camps with a handwritten letter to every coach on staff. I did that for two years. And like, again, just putting yourself out there a bunch, you're in the right place at the right time. Well, if you're there more often, like there's a better chance that someone remembers you. I think that's uh, that's a valid point. I mean, I remember uh, I would go to the camps and I would drive my uh, golf cart around and I would evaluate coaches, you know, how, what they were teaching, how they were teaching it. And if I saw a good young coach, I'd definitely write his name down and keep him on my list, somebody to watch. And I think there's an excellent opportunity that we didn't do that in our day. The camps in our day were you went to one camp to your camp. That was it, you know. So and once I graduated Wesleyan, like I was I was I just graduated and I already had a network of like 70 D1 coaches that knew me by name and they saw me at the convention, they said hi to me. They had some respect for me because I showed up, volunteered my time and made their jobs easier on a camp day. I think it's the same thing where if you're showing up at clinics every day and you're that annoying fly on the wall, that eventually I think persistence pays. And I think the biggest thing to break into this profession is, is persistence. I don't think it's only you have to be a genius to be a coach. There's no no academic requirements to be a coach. You know, I think it's just if you're proving you can work hard and you're willing to grind, like that's what this profession is. There's more guys that are coaching now that aren't great coaches, but are just been grinders yep. and just have found a way to to kind of outlast everyone. I remember, I think it was either Ed Warner uh, or, or someone a couple of years ago that, that we were sitting, we went out on dinner, out to dinner. They, they came in to recruit a kid at Bosco. Him and I went out after. They said, the, the key to being a college football coach is just outlasting people, you know, because the, the grind gets you. You see so many guys leave the profession just because of the grind. And, and if you can outlast people early on in the career, you can outlast people during the, the career and then outlast people at the end of the career, you know, that's how you stay in the game. But there's not a lot of people that do that. No, I think that's why, like, older guys, you see them so willing to take, like, a $45,000 quality control job just to stay in it, just to stay at that level. You know, you might be a guy that's coached for 20 years and you get fired and you're willing to go make forty. 
$20,000 to be a quality control analyst just to stay in it. And if you outlast someone, eventually that opportunity comes you know, rather than, you know, going down a level. I think with this opening this up to uh, PDs or quality control guys, PDs or player development or quality control, they're kind of uh, a notch below uh, graduate assistants now, but they're still involved in the business of college football. If they do a good job there, many times they get elevated to a graduate assistant. And so, so it's one more step. More people that are involved in the coaching hierarchy, uh, being able to get a job, make contacts, do a good job, get rewarded, and go up the ladder. So uh, I think there's more opportunities because of that now. Can you survive doing that? That's what you have to endure if you want to get to the next step. And that's that's still not guaranteed. You know, at the, at the convention, the coaching convention, they have like a GA talk every year, like, you know, focused on helping GAs network or giving them advice. And I remember maybe two, three years ago, James Franklin, the head coach of Penn State, was was speaking at, at this GA thing. And his advice to guys, he was like, hey, if you want to make it in this profession as a D1 coach, stay broke and stay single as long as you can. Stay broke, be willing to be broke, be willing to be single as long as you can, because then you're not making decisions off money. You can make decisions off what's the best opportunity for my career. If you don't have, you know, like for me at Albany and Rutgers, I slept in the press box for eight months at, at Albany and slept on a couch or a blow up mattress in the facility for two years at Rutgers. And I also, I think that advice from Franklin was good is that if you really want to make it, stay single, stay broke. That way you can just grind and sacrifice to get yourself the next job rather than feel pressure to maybe move down a level to get a higher paycheck or, or get out of the profession altogether when you have those other commitments. You go to these coaches' conventions, the National Coaching Convention, and you spend most of the time in the lobby just trying to make contacts, and you realize how many regular coaches don't have jobs, let alone graduate assistants. So you really have to be in the right place at the right time, know the right people to get a break, to get in. And then once you do, you have to do a good job. If you do a good job, usually it works out, even if it's at a lower level and working your way up. But Well, you look at... You know, places like at Ohio State and, and places that position coaches become coordinators, coordinators become head coaches. That's the best way for a young guy to get a job. Latch on to one of those guys. Hundred percent, like Tom Herman when he left Ohio State and went down to to Texas. Mm -hmm. He went to Houston first, Houston I think. First in Texas, right? So he he brought two or three guys with him from Ohio State that were younger guys because you know you go to a smaller school, you're not taking the you know the position coaches with you because you're not going to be able to pay them the same amount. But you take some of the younger coaches, you know the the GAs or some of the the analysts or, or guys in that sense. And now in the older days, like when I was a grad graduate assistant, they allowed five graduate assistants, which was really probably where they should have been. You pretty much did all the gopher work. I mean, I worked from, you know, five o'clock in the morning to one o'clock in the morning. You know, I mean, it's one of those type of deals. And, and uh, I can remember Sunday was, I picked the film up at 4.30 in the morning and watched it with Coach Claiborne at five and left the building at one. So... Well, uh, yeah, I did that. You know, and it was a tremendous learning experience to sit with the head coach and watch just you and him eating my wife or my at that time my girlfriend's coffee cake and drinking coffee from five o'clock in the morning till ten and watch offense, defense, and special teams and he pretty much grading the whole thing as you went along. So I did that for you know eleven games and um, you know I was. Tremendous learning experience right there, and just to be with that caliber of coach. And I think I think as hard as it might be to break into the profession with no D1 ties or anything, I think the hardest I think the hardest transition in your career is definitely that next job after you're a GA. You know what I mean? Like, what what's that next move? Because it's, it's if you stay as an analyst, then the knock on you is well, you've never recruited. 
Well, then if you go back down to the one double A level, it's well, you've never recruited at the D1 level, or now you have to really have success at the D1 double A level to earn your way back up. Like you said, that can be difficult. And I think that finding that next job that actually affords you a career after being a GA, like a lot of people's division one coaching careers just stop after being a GA and they never make it back mm-hmm. because of that. It's hard. It's hard to find that right opportunity. And someone once said to me when I came out of playing in the NFL and they said, if they don't want to hire you, they will find a reason why they don't want to hire you. Mm-hmm. So you could you could be a great recruiter, you could be the best guy for the job, but if they don't want to hire you, they'll find a reason not to hire you. You know, and it goes for for any profession, for any job across the board. At the end of the day, you know, you've gotta you've gotta grind and there's gotta be some stuff that, that kind of falls your way because there's so many guys out there who go through their GAs and now after two years they're trying to figure out what do I do now? Some guys leave football, right. some guys go to one double A or, or D two and, and then you know, five years later they're still coaching one double A football, you know, they haven't had an opportunity to get that job at, you know, one of the, the BCS power five schools that, that everyone wants. It's, you know, everyone wants the big job, but not everyone gets the big job. Right. You know, it's a number game and that's what it becomes. Yeah. When I was a GA, everyone told me the best thing to do was to go coach. And that was to go down to the one double A or D two level and coach. But you need to have the the field experience of, of right. coaching a group, running meetings, being on the road recruiting, and, and doing all that stuff. But you still, at the end of the day, you've got to be able to get yourself into a position where you can get back into that role. Because again, once you leave, it's hard. You yeah. know, it's really even even to get an analyst job, it, it's not it an is. easy no, thing to do. Well. And you know what you do as a as a GA if you're GAing at a at a Division one school, that's where you have to build relationships. You know, so when you do. Go Go and take a lower level job. Now you can work your way back into being an analyst somewhere, and then now you've kind of hit it from both sides. Mm-hmm. But it's it's a it's a fight. It's a challenge. It's not an easy profession. You know, it's not not easy on families, and and it's not easy for young guys to get into the profession. I think it's a lot like pledging a frat. Honestly, like I think you have to like pay your dues. You have to go through hell week. You know, all that kind of stuff. That like you, know, you have to do all these things. That like they almost bully you and like try to weed you out. Like and if you if you're pledging a frat, they you know, make it as hard as possible for you in the beginning and try and weed those guys out that aren't here for it. I think it's similar to why, like there's some coaches that believe you have to be a GA and have to eat shit for, for years because they did that, but it also proves you that you're willing to fight hard enough to then go coach for them. And I think it's a similar similar concept. Yeah, I think the thing about being a GA is you learn so much football because you're you're breaking down film, you're you're running a scout team. Usually if you're an offensive, offensive GA, you're working with the defense. If you're a defensive GA, you're working with the offense. So you get crossover there. And, you know, a lot of the guys who are, are real successful coaches now, they say they've learned more football as a GA right. than, than they ever did. But then you look at guys, you know, why does Bill Belichick make every offensive coach a defensive coach when they get there as a younger coach in their program? Because he's trying to teach the game of football and they're trying to maximize, you know, what their what their employees understand about the game. Mm-hmm. And that he fits well to, to, to him, <laughs> speaking of Wesley, Bill Belichick's a Wesley alum. He didn't play D1 football. So I think he, is someone who has a background where he's more understanding for guys who are trying to make it who don't have that playing experience like he became a great coach without that playing experience whereas I think those guys who are great players and now are great coaches that kind of think you need that I think that's part of it too where like you want to find that opportunity you got to find the right fit of a guy who values what you bring to the table Mm -hmm. and I think a lot of it too it's a little position specific when you're talking about playing versus not playing I think if you're talking about you know the offense and defensive lines I don't think you really have to to have been a player at that position or or in general to Because there's enough scheme and there's enough technique where you're talking about, you know, you're not talking about having to read different defenders and, and key different things like you would if you were a quarterback. You know, as an offensive lineman, where's my mic point? The combination on the front side is here to here. Combination on the back side is there to there. I, I honestly don't know that you have to. I think the only position where you really have to have played it to be a great coach is quarterback. 
I agree. Because, you know, I, and I, even that, there's obviously anomalies there where guys who never played it are great quarterback coaches. Mm-hmm. But I think that's the one position. It's, it's it's hard to understand what they're going through if you haven't done it yourself. Like even being a receiver, being a running back, being I would say linebacker is probably the next thing. Where like there's so much mental part of it. You haven't played mm-hmm. linebacker. I, I'd imagine it'd be hard to teach. But everything else, I think there's enough scheme and enough technique you can learn where you can still be a great coach. Uh, as a former quarterback myself, you you go through things uh, during the course of a game, and even as a in a game plan week in practice that really you would know if you didn't play the position you only learn it by actually doing it and and it makes it easier to coach it but at the same time it's not a necessity so all of a sudden i get a linkedin message from kyle flood saying are you going to be at the convention in indianapolis this is 20 this is june january of 2014 but i was going with albany or whatever and i was like yeah so then that's it he goes i go yes he goes all right we'll meet up there i get to the convention the first day i get another linkedin message from and he goes meet me in my hotel room you know the conrad hotel room 1449 whatever it was don't disclose my location to anybody. And so I show up in the room and everyone told me, they're like, listen, they're not gonna put you on the board. They're not gonna ask you to draw plays. Like you're gonna be a GA. They just want you to, you know, talk about life and just see like, first thing he does, he goes, all right, well, let's put you up on the board and draw some plays. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm all nervous and he's like, all right, it's third and eight. What's your bet? Like drop your favorite formation, drop your best third and eight play. And I'm literally so nervous. This is the one thing I didn't spend all night preparing for. Right. Like, so I draw two by two, like two receivers on each side, and I literally draw four verticals, like four straight lines, like all go. No. I swear to God, I drew up all go. <laughs> and he's like, all right. He goes, so now drop a four, three, cover two defense, take me through the quarterback's reads. And like that was now we're talking football. And like I knew all that, like read the free safety, whatever. All right, now right. flip the page. He had like this big easel with like big pages, flip the page. Right. And he was like, drop, uh, you know, one high coverage and take me through the quarterback's reads. And then I was rolling a little bit. We'd start talking ball, whatever. Bottom line is like, we talked about my life. We talked about ball. I had this big recruiting presentation about how to better use social media in recruiting, yeah. which I worked on for a while. That that I just thought it was like material to give him to make me stand out as a person. Right. Actionable plan. Exactly. Yeah. And so he really thought that was cool. And we probably talked for four hours. And in the end, he's like, all right, well, listen, if you want to work at Rutgers, like there's a job here for you. Don't let me know now. Talk to your people and let me know in 24 hours. Let me know in 24 hours. 24 hours. You realize like that's a very quick turnaround. Very quick. <laughs> I know, but that's how coaching works. As far as a player development person or or a, a quality control person, whatever you want to call them, you know, I would evaluate them on how how trustworthy were they, what's what was the quality of their work. If a guy is not going to be accountable there, he's probably not going to be accountable as, a, as an assistant coach or a graduate assistant. You want people you can count on. So there's opportunities there to move up, but you, you got to do a good job and you got to work hard and you got to be attentive and you got to get better every day and those are the things that that if you really want to be a coach you're willing to sacrifice I mean you're not going to get paid much you're not going to you're not going to have much of a social life you know I mean when I would go out Fridays and watch games I'd take now my wife she would come with me to watch the games you know and that was okay as long as I didn't have to pay for it I paid that (laughs) <laughs> what little money she probably paid half the time. I didn't have any money. Are they married? And if they are married, you need to meet the wife. I would do that with my assistant coaches. I would tell my assistant coaches, if you have a problem, I would tell their wives, if you have a problem with your husband spending more time with me than with you, probably shouldn't take this job because that's what's going to happen. Right. <laughs> it's a great Some point. of them look at you like you're crazy, but that's what's going to happen. So you got to find the right woman. That's you got a, a wife who's moaning because her husband's not there all the time it's not going to work out for you and it's probably gonna, not going to work out for her one way or the other neither one of us are going to be happy you know then you got to find a good guy to communicate with players who can motivate who's a hard worker who has good football iq 
So what what kind of things would you do in the interview process to, to find those things out? Well, I put everybody on board. I tell them, okay, like if you were a GA, all right, uh, what's your favorite play? Or what's your favorite defense? Coach me on it. I had one guy only put 10 guys on the board one time, a high school coach. I didn't think he was going to make it. I interviewed Don Brown. That was a really very fun interview. How old was he at the time? Well, he was the head coach in Massachusetts, and I brought him in for an interview, and I put it on my dime because if I had brought him in and um, the school had paid for it, then it would probably get on the Internet, and probably Don would probably lose his job at, at head coach in Massachusetts. So what I would do with an assistant or a coordinator, somebody I wanted to hire, I usually brought him in and went out to dinner with him and just kind of get a feel of who he is as a person, you know find out his background, what's his family life situation, you know, where's he from, all of, all of things, you know, just like I would do with a kid. Don and I kind of hit it off pretty good, and then I'd bring him in and put him on the board. So with Don, I said, okay, let's get on the board. Let's get up there and, uh, and show me your defense. So Don says to me, well, coach, he said, um, if you're expecting me to draw up cover four, this interview is over. <laughs> <laughs> So what are you talking about? So he goes, well, he said, I'll show you my base defense and then I'll kind of go from there. So he started showing me this stuff and I said, okay, all right, tell me how you defend wishbone. Tell me how you defend, uh, how you defend, you know, what other coverage you play other than man? How do you mix it up? We went on for three and a half hours and it was, it was more of a clinic than it was an interview. It was, it was great. As far as being prepared, being a GA and being in staff meetings and being in offensive game plan meetings, it prepared me. Because as a player, I was always a quarterback, but I never put a game plan together. Right. You know, even right. you go to a D3 school and, you know, they do some stuff and you don't know if that's how you actually do it or not. But when you sit in a room with a guy like, you know, Ralph Regent, who's been in a Super Bowl, who's won a national championship, you you see how he does it. You see what's worked and right. and you take stuff from that. So that was beneficial from, from my end as far as just seeing the structure of how to do everything, not really getting the job itself. I think, again, I, I've been fortunate just because I've been able to build some good connections throughout my playing career and then and then after the fact. And, you know, again, being in the right place at the right time. I, if I had been at Wagner or Kane, I still would have gotten the call. But I was more prepared to be able to do this stuff as a coordinator, especially a first-time coordinator, um, because I did this stuff as a GA. So, so now let's go back to your playing days in the NFL, right? So let's say you're, quote-unquote, looking for a job in the NFL. Like let's say for, like, you got drafted by Seattle, were there about two years, two and a half years, and then got cut. So after that process, now you're 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 a free agent. You're looking for for a job in the NFL as a player. How, how does that work? It's about the worst thing that can happen to you as a player because once you get cut once, you're a lot easier getting cut twice and three and four or five times. You know, so my, my personal experience is I, I lucked out because I had agents that, that worked for me and agents that uh, that did a good job. I, I get cut on a Tuesday or on a Wednesday. You go through a waiver wire process where a team can put a claim in for you. You go unclaimed. And now all of a sudden, if you go unclaimed, the, the agents have to really start to work for you. Um, I went through the waiver process. I got claimed by the Patriots. So what happens was I got cut on Wednesday. By Friday, I was claimed. You go through waivers for 48 hours. I got claimed off of waivers by the Patriots. So I left Seattle and went to New England. And it happened again overnight. So you know, funny story. We had signed, uh, or really we had talked, me and a couple of buddies were going to play this golf course in Seattle, uh, TPC Squalnomi. It's where they play a bunch of PGA events and stuff like that. And we were playing on Friday. So we, we had workouts Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. We were off on Friday. So it was about a 50... 55 minute drive from from Seattle we went out west over 
the the pass and we're out there and we go to play. So I got cut on Wednesday. I knew I was going through waivers, but you don't know if anyone's claiming you or not. So get out there. My agent said, you know, go out and play. You know, we'll figure it out. So I'm on the course. We, we're playing. We're on the, the fifth or sixth hole. It's a par three over water. It's like one of their signature holes. And my phone rings and it's an area code. I don't know. It says Boston, Massachusetts on it. So I'll pick it up real quick. So my friend hits. We're playing in a foursome. My my friend hits. I'm supposed to be the next guy up. I'm on the phone. Ends up being Bill Belichick. So I can't tell Coach Belichick. Coach can hold on a minute. I got to hit this shot real quick. He's basically telling me they just claim me off waivers that they're going to put me on a flight this tonight. And that I'll be in in Boston by tomorrow morning. You know, I'll take a you know a flight overnight and I'll yeah. be ready to go. So, so I ended up not playing the hole, which is supposed to be the signature hole, right. because I'm talking to Bill Belichick on the phone about how they're excited to get me out there. That I cleared waivers. That you know I'm going to have an opportunity to compete for the number two job for you know to be Tom's backup right. and, and everything like that. And I'm out there playing golf. Yeah. It's like you know what are the chances? Awesome. What are the chances of that? So it was it was interesting, but. You know, fast forward, you know, I get hurt in Chicago. It's the year of lockout. There's uh, really no communication between agents and, and clubs because of the lockout. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, the lockout ends and it's fast forward. Your agents are working. They're trying to get your workouts. They're trying to do this and trying to do that. There's the, the agent is the key to the driving force when you're trying to find a job as a player in the NFL because they're the ones that have relationships with the GMs. They're the ones that have relationships with other agents, you know, player personnel guys with, with whoever it is. And those are the guys that are able to get you in the door. It's a competitive field. When you're, when you're talking about my position as a quarterback, teams keep two for the most part, some keep three, at least back then. I don't know what they do now. And and some teams will have two in a practice squad guy. So if there's two in a practice squad guy, practice squad guy is usually someone they're trying to develop who's a younger player. Are they going to give up that roster spot to a guy who just got cut by another team? Right. Usually no. So it comes to, you know, you're going to have to compete for the number two job. And, you know, for a guy who's been there for two years as the number two, and you're a free agent coming in to compete for that two job, You've got to learn 350 pages of a playbook yeah. in a matter of a week without practicing it. Yeah. And then you got to go out and execute it and you get judged based off how you execute it, right. which it's hard. It's yeah. it's hard. You've got to show a lot of promise and a lot of talent to be able to kind of win those jobs out. Absolutely. And I remember in one of the episodes, too, you were saying how, you know, ultimately most guys get burned out. It's hard to wake yourself up every single day and come with that intensity. And that's what's so impressive. I remember you saying this about, about the Tom Brady's, the Peyton Manning's, that they can go on for a 20-year career and wake up every day and be the best player in the world every day and, and stay at that level. Yeah, and I think part of it, too, is it's a product of, of where they've been. They've been in the same place. Mm-hmm. They, they There's familiarity. There's there's a sense of, of being comfortable there, knowing and not not a sense of comfortable, I'm not going to work hard, but knowing I'm going to work and I have a job every day. You know, for a, for a, a later-round draft pick or a free agent or a guy who's kind of fighting, you wake up every day hoping that you're going to have a job. Those guys wake up, they know they have their job. Yeah. They're just working to make themselves better. So there's, there's a little bit of a difference. You talk about, you know, fighting for survival and fighting for comfort you know when you're fighting for survival yeah your your back's against the wall but but you're also pressing to try to do everything you need to do whereas if you're successful and you're comfortable with where you are you're fighting to be the best player you can be you're not fighting to keep a job and it changes it 
how do you get to be a coordinator? Okay, well, to me, you got to be an outstanding posi- positional coach. And I think you have to understand more than just your position. Um, you know, there were times when I was even a, a coordinator, I would hold coaching clinics within my staff. And I would get the offensive line coach up and I would tell him, okay, tell me what I want you to coach me about what the running backs are doing for this play or that play. T- take me through how, how you would coach running backs. And then I would do the same thing with the running back coach. And I would tell switch with the quarterbacks and the receivers coach because I think it was very important that everybody knew what everybody else was teaching so everybody would be on the same page. You'd be surprised that people couldn't do that. But, and they hated it. They didn't like it because I'd tell them, okay, you know, we're going to come in next week and you know, Tom Bratton, you're going to tell me what, what the running backs are doing. And Mike Loxley, you're going to tell me what the lines do. All of a sudden, they're, they're back there preparing because they don't want to be embarrassed before the peers. And I do the same thing on defense. And so where everybody got to know more than just their position. And I think the guys that can, can do that and even take it from the guys on offense that know what the defense is doing, those are the guys that are going to become coordinators. So... Football, the more you know about football. Hell, I watch games today, and I learn things when I went to Rutgers. I watch TV games, and I, I learn different things. Going, you know, so it's always a it's always a learning curve. I write, I write things down, I see, which I'm probably never going to coach again. But, you know, I think that's a pretty neat idea, you know. So so then what's, once you're a coordinator, what's the process of then becoming a head coach? Well, obviously you need to be successful. <laughs> You know, if you're a successful coordinator and your team is successful, I think that makes you a, a desired commodity. And then what happens is you, you know, you got to build a, a network just like you did as a GA. I mean, people have to, most guys hire an agent because I, the thing I found about hiring an agent was I was still coaching football. I'd call my agent and let him put my name in and tell me what they're looking for. And, you know, sometimes they, they would call the ADs and send a resume in and so on and so forth. I sent a lot of resumes no one even read. In fact, I was playing I was playing golf one time with Fedora, who was the AD at North Carolina. And I told him, I said, you know, I sent you like five resumes over the years. I never even got a response. He goes, I can't believe you did that. I said, yeah, I enjoy beating you every time I play you. You know, I didn't even get a call back or, or thank you for your interest. What most of these schools have now is headhunters. There's these people that are in business and, and they, they work for assistant coaches just as much as they do for head coaches. So, uh, you know, a lot of times a head coach now will, will call a headhunter and say, you know, this is what I'm looking for in an offensive coordinator. Can you give me some names? And they'll have a bunch of names for you. They'll contact those guys to see if there's an interest. And then he gets a list of names with their resumes, and then he decides who he wants to bring in. Uh, I never did it that way, but I, I know people do it. And they do the same thing for head coaches, ADs. I think it's the, the main way ADs do it now. They work professional. I mean, right now, uh, Ernie Acorsi is doing that for, for the, the Giants right now. The, the ADs will go out and, and, and use their recommendations and then set up interviews. Uh, And I think the main person that hired me was Debbie Yao, but she had to get the okay from the chancellor, from the president, 
from the faculty senate. All these different layers that I had to go through. You know, when I left, they brought in Mike Leach, and it didn't go well with those layers, and they didn't hire him. I think the AD wanted to hire him, but he didn't make the right impression on the on the other layers, and he didn't get hired. So, so you and you said when you when you interviewed in Maryland, you said it was a much more extensive process than than you anticipated? Well, I had contact with Dr. Yao. She said she wanted to interview me, and she interviewed me after the Sunday after our last game in Atlanta. And the interview went very well, about three hours. And so that got me an interview with everybody else. So I think that was on Sunday. I think Tuesday they flew me up. And then it was kind of a, you know, they wanted to avoid the press. Press is all over the place trying to find out who they're bringing in. You know, so you know, they wanted to keep that under cloak and dagger. So then when I got there, the first person I met was the president. And I think I met the uh, chancellor also. Then I, uh, I had lunch with uh, the, the faculty, uh, many of which, many of which um, had actually taught me in college. I remember one one woman said to me, Coach Regan, you've been known as a genius on offense. I said, Well, ma'am, I said I have a lot of my former professors here, and they can attest that I'm not a genius. So that got a little bit of a laugh. And then they had me meet with the players, and that was that was an interesting. There were like ten players. I remember it was. Uh, they were all seated in front of me. One was, two of them were right beside me. It was kind of like a smaller room. And I, I used that format to find out what were their problems were. The best question that I got asked the whole day in all those different interviews was by a kid whose name is Aaron Thompson, who became one of our captains. And he said to me, so what are you going to do that all these other coaches that we've had hasn't done? How are you going to make us win? Which really is <laughs> probably the most important question that nobody else asked me. And I said to him, well, the first thing I'm going to do is teach you how not to lose. I said, we're not going to turn the ball over, and we are going to get turnovers. We're, we're going to cut down on penalties. We're not going to allow sacks. We're going to create sacks. Then you're going to be in the best condition that you've ever been in your life. You're gonna be stronger and faster than you've ever been because we're gonna work extremely hard. And I said, once you learn how not to lose, we're gonna win some games that we weren't supposed to win. And then we're gonna get confidence. And because we have that confidence, we're gonna grow as a team. That's how I answered the question. He must have been impressed by that. Well, I, I guess so, he hired me. Okay. Yeah. That's all we've got for episode number 14 of the Sideline Hustle podcast. Thank you so much for hanging out with us and for giving us your time. I think that was the most fun I've had putting together an episode so far. Next week we'll be off for the holidays, but I'm going to throw together some sort of highlight collection or best of collection from the first 14 episodes that I'll come out with next week around that time. Uh, Coming out after the break will be an episode about bowl season. I know a lot of us have some hilarious stories about bowl trips and also some valuable insight into what the experiences are like. And then we will release part three of the coaching carousel series as we talk about a coach's first priorities after taking a new job and how that changes from assistants to coordinators and head coaches again i can't thank all you guys enough for the growing support we made it to the top tens in the itunes sports podcast rankings today and teach tapes continues to grow on twitter and instagram make sure you follow us at sideline hustle if you don't already we will definitely be putting out a ton of content during the break and stay tuned for some big announcements once we return happy holidays everyone uh, i'm Peace. from where they barely make it house is getting raided Hair breaking, late rent payment, lack of motivation. No father figures, I ain't seen this ass in ages. Not too many know about my trials and tribulations. Talking to my mom just like that with my shoelaces.
this.